In that moment, I felt a warmth just go into my chest like liquid fire. I never had such peace in all my life. It was so wonderful. And then for about 30 seconds, I don't think it lasted more than that, but there was Jesus looking right at me. And if I were an artist with perfect recall, I could tell you what he looked like, at least this part of him. Right. It, was, it, it was real. The Profile with Premier Christianity magazine. Hello and welcome to The Profile here on Premier Christian Radio. I'm Sam Hales, one of the presenters of this show, where we meet a new Christian every week and find out about their life, their faith and their testimony. And for this episode, we're digging back into the archives to bring you a very special interview that Justin Briley conducted with the very well-known church leader and author, Artie Kendall. Do hope you enjoy this. I'm Justin Briley and joining me today is Artie Kendall. He's, of course, a prolific author, a pastor and a theologian. He's going to be telling us about his life and his ministry. For 25 years, he was, of course, the minister of Westminster Chapel here in London. Uh, Artie, thank you for joining me on the programme today. I'm thrilled. You, you honour me. Well, it's an honour to have you here. Don't, um, don't make the angels laugh. <laughs> Uh, before we get going, I should say, for anyone who's listening, if you want to find more interviews with Christians, including people like RT, uh, with, from all walks of life, um, all walks of ministry as well, then do check out Christianity Magazine. This programme is brought to you in association with them. RT, I always like to go back to the beginning in the profile interview. So let's go back to 1935. <laughs> but it was in Kentucky. Um, was that where things started out for you? Did you move around much in the early years? Well, I was born into a Christian home. Uh, my church background is Church of the Nazarene. Mm. Not so well known over here. Uh, fairly well known in America. And um, my father, mother, they were pillars in the church. We went to church every time the door was opened. Uh, I was converted one Easter morning, 1942. Uh, I remembered as though it were yesterday. Uh, I knelt at my parents' bedside, confessed my sins, wept, and as I look back, I don't remember what sins I had committed, only that I sassed my parents. I think <laughs> that made me conscious that I was a sinner. Uh, but uh, I had a wonderful early background. As I look around the world and see others, <laughs> at the time I complained. Now I think how grateful I mm. should be to be born in a Christian home and in a town before any kind of violence or vulgarity or the stuff that we see every day hadn't even penetrated mm. that part of the world. And so that's my background. So as it were, accepting Christ, even as a six or seven year old, would you say that that was still a sort of, you knew what you were doing? And, and, and... Oh, it was my idea. In fact, I will never know until I get to heaven and ask, was it because it was Easter that I <laughs> felt anything? All I know is I came to my dad. I said, I want to be a Christian. I was crying. He said, we don't need to wait until we get to church. We can kneel right down here. And my mother and dad beside me, and I just cried and wept and confessed my sin, and I felt so good afterwards. <laughs> and uh, uh, no, it was, it was my idea. And uh, it was very, very real. I'm, I'm sure I was converted then. I have no doubt about it. Um, going on, you know, winding the clock forward a bit, obviously your faith grew and developed over time. Um, at what point did your theology start to emerge? Uh, you, you kind of um, decided reasonably early on that you were a Calvinist. Uh, well, let's put it this way. First of all, I should say... In 1953, when my mother became very ill, she died at the age of 43, I was 17. Following October, September, went to Trevecca Nazarene College. And uh, at that stage, I wasn't going into the ministry. I used to want to be a lawyer. Okay. Uh, and then the following year, I felt called to the ministry. I didn't have a spectacular call. I wanted one because I'd heard these stories about God appearing in a vision or something. And, and I was always told, don't get, go into the ministry if you can do anything else. 
<laughs> and I heard horror stories of people going into the ministry. They weren't called. Mm. So I was dragging my feet. I was waiting for Michael the Archangel to come down and tap me on the shoulder. I wanted to be that clear. As it happened, a Scotsman, Dr. John Sutherland Logan from near Glasgow, was a guest preacher at Trevecca. And he befriended me for some reason. I took him to breakfast, or he took me two or three mornings. And the last time I was to see him, I said, would you help me with one thing? I need to know how to know I'm called to preach. He said, you are. I said, what do you mean? He said, you are. Well, I said, I need to know. He said, you are. I said, yeah, but you, you don't ever want to go into it unless you know you're called. He said, you are. <laughs> he said, do you know what? I believed him. I never looked back. Mm -hmm. And the thing, it was so unspectacular. It was not Michael the Archangel, but a Scotsman. But I have never forgotten it. And he and I later on became very, very close. And um, that's how I was called to preach. Now, three months later, if you can believe this, I was invited to pastor a church. I'm still a student yeah. at Trevecca. I'm now 20 years old. And a little church 115 miles away in Palmer, Tennessee, country church up on a mountain. And they didn't mind having a student pastor. And so in three months, I was pastor for church. Some months after that, October 31st, 1955, driving in my car from Palmer back to Trevecca, as I did because I was still a student. So Mondays to Fridays, I was a student, weekends, pastor. It was a Monday morning. I was no more expecting this. The glory of the Lord filled the car. I'm driving. I can take you to the spot on old US 41. In fact, I've taken people there. I see this right in here. Yeah. There was Jesus at the right hand of the Father interceding for me. In your car? Well, yeah. <laughs> I, it was as though we were in the car, but I guess he was at the right hand of God. It was a vision. There's no doubt about that. But I'm still driving. He was as real as you are. He was looking at me as you are, except that I was driving. And I could see him praying for me, but I didn't know what he was saying. I just kept driving. I burst into tears, and I thought, he loves me more than I love myself. And I, two verses came to me. One was 1 Peter 5, 7, casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. The other is, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I thought, Lord, help me to cast my care on you. Then I can say, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. An hour later, I can show you where that was, too. I don't know what happened in that hour. Mm. When I get to heaven, I want to get a DVD. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how I drove. Honestly, I mean, it. I don't want to push this point, but if that wasn't being brought up into the third heaven, you could have fooled me. I, I do not remember anything. As we were coming into Smyrna, Tennessee, just 10 miles out of Nashville, I heard Jesus say to the Father, He wants it. Voice replied, Father to Jesus, He can have it. In that moment, I felt a warmth just go into my chest like liquid fire. I never had such peace in all my life. It was so wonderful. And then for about 30 seconds, I don't think it lasted more than that, but... There was Jesus looking right at me. And if I were an artist with perfect recall, I could tell you what he looked like, at least this part of him. Right. It, was, it was real. And then, then it left. It was now about 10 minutes till 8 in Monday morning. I had to go to class. <laughs> I go to my room, I shave, and I remember walking across the campus. What happened to me? And all day long, I just thought, what was that? And a friend who was my roommate, actually he lived next door to me, but he was very, very close, came running across the campus hours later. He said, R.T., what has happened to you? Well, something has happened, but I don't know what. And I told him what I've just told you, rightly or wrongly, I just told him. He said, was it a third work of grace? You see, that's Nazarene <laughs> terminology. We got saved and sanctified, two works of grace. Yeah. Now this, is this the third work? I said, well, maybe it is. I know one thing. What? I'm saved. What do you mean saved? Of course you're saved. No, this is different. 
I'm eternally saved. What are you saying? I'm saying that I cannot be lost no matter what I do. I have had one foot in heaven. I'm going back there. Nothing could stop it. He said, you, 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 won't, be, you won't believe that for, for long. I said, I'll never change. He said, you will. I said, I won't. Now, that was still October 31st, 1955. People say to me, how could you have been so sure? Well, I've, I've since discovered in the Bible what it was. It's called when God swears an oath to you. When that happens to you, you don't doubt it. You know it. I knew I was eternally saved. And before the end of the day, I began to see things I'd never even thought of, that I was chosen, that what happened to me was a sovereign work of God. And a few weeks after that, when I was the assistant to the dean of religion and told him these things, he said, R.T., you're going off into Calvinism. I said, what's that? He said, well, we don't believe that. I said, then we are wrong. <laughs> and he said, oh, don't leave the church. Well, I said, I, I just know what I've found in the Bible. I began to read verses to him from Romans 8, Romans 9. Romans 9 and I said, what's this mean? He said, give me some time on that. Fifty years later, the same man, <laughs> who beat time, Dr. Greathouse, a close friend over the years, he loved me. He's the one who recommended me to get a DD at Trevecca about yeah. four years ago. But he knew how it happened. Fifty years later, still hadn't figured out verses in Romans 9. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. And I hadn't read a word out of Calvin or any of the Puritans. People don't believe this. I'm telling you, I got it out of the Bible and by the Holy Spirit. And that is why I'm so firm in it. Uh, but this was a supernatural experience. And then when I began to meet some Calvinists, you know what they said to me? Well, they said, that can't happen to you because God doesn't do that today. <laughs> no, they were what they call cessationists. Well, the, this the, is the why The miraculous I say ceased. You're an unconventional Calvinist in that well, sense. Well, I'm not trying to be anything. I'm, I'm telling you. <laughs> They said that can't happen. I said, well, it did. Well, but, the, but, but God doesn't do that today. They, all that ceased in the early yeah, church. Yeah, I yeah. said, well, look, what if it led me to being a Jehovah's Witness? Then you'd say it was of the devil, wouldn't you? Sure. I said, it's led me to believe what you believe. Yeah. How could that happen? And it, they could it, never it, reply to that. It's a fascinating story because it is, in a sense, not the normal way people get to Calvinism. Very often it's a sort of a very almost dry and academic <laughs> Well, study of Bible. This was a yeah. sort of rapturous vision. That, I'll tell you how I know you're conclusion. right. How many of my old Nazarene friends do you think I've convinced of Calvinism? Not one. Not one. <laughs> Not one. Now, being the minister at Westminster Chapel, which you're going to ask me about later, I'm sure, I never wore my Calvinism on my sleeve. I mean, they didn't know I was a Calvinist. Mm -hmm. I didn't I didn't preach on it unless the text called for it. Sure. Now, if the text called for it, I mm. say it. And here's the thing. People came there as Arminians after their two or three years. They're Calvinists, but they don't remember when it happened. <laughs> it was I, a process of osmosis. I, they just <laughs> believe these things. Yeah. And to me, that's the way it happens. It doesn't happen by convincing a person, putting a pistol to the head, so you've got to believe this. A man convinced against his will is of the same opinion still. But over a period of time, when people sit under one's ministry... That's sure. how it happens. I, I mean, you've written so many books uh, in areas of theology, in areas of the work of the Spirit. Um, one of the titles that's always sort of stuck out for me is, is Once Saved, Always Saved, which essentially is, is a sort of key facet of Calvinist well, theology. Well, that got me in more trouble than any book. Well, I was going to say, it did, it did provoke controversy. Well, um, I didn't think it would. I mean, the, 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 the central point of it is simply that what you've already described, that you yeah. believe that once you're saved... You cannot lose yourself. I'll tell you what caused me to write that book. I'll tell you exactly. I thought for years that what happened to me was unique. I thought only unless that happened could this apply to you. But I could see from Romans 3, 4, 5, whoever believes on him shall not be ashamed. Whom he predestined, he called, whom he called, he justified, whom he justified and glorified. And once I saw that it was a biblical truth, I wrote the book. I mean, the obvious objection that I'm sure many people think practically is, but, but how can that be true when you look at people who perhaps did have a Christian conversion, 
but then fell away quite dramatically maybe have completely rejected god are we saying well you're still saved whether you like it or not good question not so easy to answer but i'll try a person truly converted cannot be lost now not all grow as fast not all turn out as well i've had to live with that because i've seen people genuinely converted and then they disappear now there's one of two things one they weren't saved in the first place and that's a very common reformed view and i held to that for a good while but i've concluded that there are those who fall and don't always come back you say well then they could not possibly be saved i reply it would be just like god to show his sheer grace to the most undeserving person now here is what i've come to see in my mature years every christian is called to come into his or her inheritance some do some don't those who do will receive a reward at the judgment seat of christ those who don't will be saved by fire and have no reward but they will be saved mm-hmm. and this is what i believe now i have been cu- accused of a, a thing called antinomianism. Yes, you'll have to explain what that means. Well, it's not a word you'll hear when you're in the supermarket <laughs> at Tesco's, <laughs> but it means anti-nomos, anti-law. It's a phrase that is used to describe the idea that if you're saved, you'll go to heaven no matter what you do. Okay, well, that is true, but the implication is that you preach it so that people can live like the devil and still go to heaven. Sure. That's not what we preach. No one's ever accused me of that. In fact, when I got in trouble and I had some of the deacons at Westminster Chapel try to get me fired over the charge of being antinomian, do you know what saved me? The testimonies of the people that had read Once Saved, Always Saved right. said made me want to be godly. Mm. And so there's not a bit of antinomianism in my lifestyle or theology, but... I had this on my side. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones used to say, and everybody knew he said it, unless the gospel we preach gives the charge of antinomianism, it's because you haven't preached it. Because if they don't (laughs) think that, you haven't got it over. And so what you have to do is show that you're saved by the sheer grace of God. But the reason we live a holy life is out of gratitude. It's like the P.S. at the end of a letter. Thank you, Lord for saving my soul. And people like this want to live godly lives. There are the exceptions, and they, I say, will be saved by fire. Now, maybe some of them weren't saved. It's hard to know. Let's move on to your time at Westminster Chapel. Once you'd come to the UK, you'd established yourself in ministry. You'd had a degree from Oxford as well. Um, That must have been a big challenge because you were stepping into some big boots. Uh, I know not immediately, but but one of your predecessors was, of course, the famous Martin Lloyd-Jones. How did it feel to kind of be taking on the church that he had ministered at? And and he was still alive, of course, at the time. Well, you, you mentioned my time at Oxford. You need to know that in 1973, when my wife, Louise, and our two children, T.R., we call him, and Melissa came over, we were coming to Oxford for three years and go back. Mm. But at the end of three years, while I'm writing up my DPhil thesis, I'm invited to preach at Westminster Chapel. They asked me to stay, initially for six months. And uh, I didn't know whether to do that or not. Now, here's the funny thing. A lot of people don't know this. Whereas it is true that Dr. Lloyd-Jones put me in Westminster Chapel, the idea of going there the first time didn't come from him. The secretary of Westminster Chapel, Mr. Padden, Ernie Padden, had been told by somebody, you ought to have R.T. Kendall some Sunday. So Mr. Padden never heard of me, so he calls Dr. Lloyd-Jones and says, we've been told we should have an R.T. Kendall. Dr. Lloyd-Jones said, have him. Theologian, you know, but have him. (laughs) Those are the words. The reason doctor said that he and I were very good friends at the time we were at Oxford. Dr. and Mrs. Lloyd-Jones would come to see us. We'd go to Stratford to see Shakespeare plays. He preached for me in my little church. 
A lot of people don't know this. I had a little church in Lower Hayford mm. in Oxfordshire, and Dr. Lloyd-Jones would preach for me. So he knew me, and he was with me every step of the way of my thesis. But he saw me as a theologian, an academic. I'll be a professor in a university. So when they said, should we have R.T. Kendall, I said, have him, theologian, you know, because it didn't cross his mind. No, that didn't might. cross his mind <laughs> that anything would come of it. Well, the deacon said, would I stay for six months? He comes to hear me preach. He called me up that night. I'll never forget, 11 o'clock at night. Are we talking about Dr. Martin Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. He had been there that morning. He didn't let me know he was coming. He said to me, you're a preacher. You're a born preacher. Your place is not in a university. Your place is in the pulpit. And he let that word go everywhere. And he and Mrs. Lloyd-Jones had come to see us. They drove to see us to persuade us to stay. I said, no, we're going home. We're going back to America. Listen, you stay. You need to be out of Oxford. Mm -hmm. He was afraid I was going to become a dried academic, and <laughs> he knew so many of the reformed men. I mean, yeah. uh, forgive me if I'm saying anything I shouldn't. He said, perfectly orthodox, perfectly useless. That's what he said about them. <laughs> and, and he knew about my Nazarene background and the experience I've told you about. I told it to him. That's why, he, that, yeah. that, listen, that's why he called me. So, so he, he was the one who really pushed you. Oh, forward. he put me there. He, he, he said it again. He said, I put you there. I said, no, you're not the one that invited me. He said, don't ever say that again. I put you there. And it's true. Was it difficult, though, to minister there, oh, knowing right. he was still there? Someone, someone with such a, you know, okay. a, a legacy. It was horrible. <laughs> I mean, he's the greatest preacher of ever. I don't know what his IQ was. But I would say men like him come around every two or three centuries. This is not just once in a generation his stature was huge. And greatest preacher since Spurgeon, for sure. Uh, and here I am. I come from the hills of Kentucky. And I can't believe it. And I have to tell you something. For 25 years, I never got over this. It, it, I blush. I'm ashamed. But I never did. I never felt it was my pulpit, ever. Really? I thought it was his. Mm. You were filling it temporarily. Well, I, I <laughs> knew that I was the minister, but who am I? Who am I to be in here? His shadow. I, I mean, I know that you didn't always see eye to eye with each other. But now, let me. You want to know the truth about that? Mm -hmm. That is not quite true. Okay. We were so close. People don't like to know this. Mm. I've got some people out there who feel called to magnify something that was very, very true, but so remote okay. in proportion. Just explain what it is then. I can't tell you everything. Okay. Because it's just, I, I'm, I, I can't. All right. But I can tell you this. When it came to our doctrine of salvation, uh, everything we've talked about today is with me 100%. A hundred percent. We didn't have any theological differences. The difference that we had that caused a little problem just before he died had nothing to do with theology. Okay. That's all. I cannot tell you more. If I told you more, you'd be angry with me for telling me. I, I mean, I can't. Okay. All right. You'd no, that's say, Arthur, absolutely you shouldn't fine. tell me that. I'm not going to. The point is, theologically, we were together. And uh, we were like father and son until just uh, weeks before he died. And then something happened. But it wasn't theological. i tell you okay. that. Okay. You're looking forward to being reunited, though, in oh, that yes. sense with him. Oh, yeah. I, one day. Listen, he was the greatest mentor next to my dad. I don't think any minister in the history of the world was as, forgive this un-Calvinistic word, <laughs> lucky as I was. Listen, first of all, I've got an Oxford education. Then... I've got Martin Lloyd-Jones. We're on the phone all the time, but every Thursday from 11 to 1, it was, it was just set. I'd come there at 11 o'clock. I once came at 5 to 11. <laughs> you know what he said? He says, well, you're not an Englishman. 
I said, what do you mean by that? An, an Englishman is never early. <laughs> well, I was never early after that. But 11 o'clock, Mrs. Lloyd-Jones would bring out coffee and Kit Kats. She'd sit down and just chat for five, six minutes, and then she would leave, and, and we'd just start in, talk to him about anything, from politics to theology. Uh, we would talk about what I'm going to preach on the main thing. This was the main thing. I would go over, line by line, everything I was going to say the following weekend. Because the reason we did it on Thursday, I had Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday to get ready for my Sunday morning, Sunday night, and Friday night. And I'd bring sheets of paper. I would read them. And he'd listen. He'd say, good, good. Oh, stop there. He said, mm, you don't want to say that. Because if you say that, they're only going to remember this when the sermon's over. You don't want them to think only <laughs> that. I mean, he taught me how to think. Yeah. He really taught me how to think. And nobody was so privileged as I was to have him. It would be how to preach, what to say, how to deal with pastoral problems, difficult situations. Uh, I mean, nobody was so blessed as I am. And so I... I <laughs> I'd be a fool, you know, not to turn out fairly well after all <laughs> he had done for me. That's, that said, I must say, you know, our ministry, I was there 25 years. He was there 30 years. I was there 20. They tried to get me to stay another five years to equal Dr. Lloyd-Jones. I said, I'm not his equal. I'm not staying 30. I'll, I'll, <laughs> 25, it's time to go. But the truth is, he had a great ministry. I had a good ministry. I wouldn't say it was great. Uh, 25 years is a long time. Did you end up feeling like a Brit in the end? You oh, know? yes. Oh, <laughs> I'm that now. You wouldn't <laughs> think it because of my accent. You've still got your accent, absolutely. Well, you know, I was beginning to lose it at the end. Americans <laughs> coming over thought I was British. <laughs> what was it like raising your family in England? Did, did they take to well, the climate and the culture? Yes, um, it's about all they know. Uh, our daughter was three. Mm. Our son was six when he came over. And uh, it wasn't easy for our son so much, going into an English school and, and then having to go to different schools when we thought of coming back, staying here instead of going back to America. And it was very hard for, for him. I think he's the one that suffered the most. And we bridged cultural gaps that we never knew we'd have to, but... Before it was over, I was as British as nearly as anybody. And, uh, and much loved and revered and, and, and so on in, you know, everyone who knows about <laughs> anything about sort of the church in the UK knows the name R.T. Kendall. Well, because you're sort of now transatlantic in that sense, aren't I guess. you? I mean, I love them. I don't know if they love me, but I love them. <laughs> we'd, we'd live here now if we could. Sure. I mean, yeah. we're having, you know, six months here, loving it. I mean, loving it. You're we currently to... here at the invitation of Kensington Temple. Yes, uh, yeah. uh, but I should say I've been preaching at Westminster Chapel too. Yeah. It's not that they didn't invite me. I don't think it entered their minds. But <laughs> I've been preaching every year for Colin Dye mm. at Kensington Temple. And last spring he just said, I thought it was a throwaway comment. I, don't think he, I didn't think he meant it. He says, why don't you come over for three to six months? We've put you up in a flat and you and Louise... When he mentioned the second time, I said, Louise, you think he means that? <laughs> well, here we are. Here you are. And, and we're just loving it. Well, it's it's nice. It's sort of almost, I guess it's been about 10, 12 years since you, 12 years. you, you yeah. Yeah, moved on. And, and so it's nice to come back for an extended spell. Oh, we love London. Yeah. And our best friends are here. And my closest friends, they're here. Let's go back to when you met Louise. Uh, you married in 1958. What were the circumstances of your... Well, you've done your homework, together? haven't you? Well, it's not that hard. There's, there's plenty of uh, information out there. <laughs> well, uh, Louise and I've been married now 55 years. I met her at Olivet Nazarene College. Now, when my theology changed, I left Treveca. And then someone said, well, you ought to get your degree. Don't... So where I... I went to Olivet. It's a long story how that happened. But anyway, I didn't get my degree at Olivet either, but I met Louise there. And, <laughs> there was uh, a greater purpose then. Well, that's what God had in mind. Uh, I can tell you the best thing that has ever happened to me in my whole life uh, was Louise. I had no idea what I was getting. 
And after 55 years, I can look at you, you can put me under a lie detector. <laughs> I see every day more and more how good God has been to me to let me have her. It was love at first sight for me. I don't think it was for her. Uh, I had to lure her. Uh, but I, when I met her, I wanted her. She's the only yeah. woman I ever met that I wanted to marry. Wow. When I left Treveca, my grandmother had given me a brand new car for my church in Palmer, Tennessee. And uh, so I, didn't, I figured that car was mine. But when she began to perceive my theology was changing, and I'm not going to be a Nazarene the rest of my life, she took the car back. <laughs> and, uh, and then I had to get a job, and I needed some clothes, and, and then I got a chance to buy a car. And if you're ready for this, I bought an airplane. <laughs> you did? I did. Another <laughs> friend of mine, I, I learned to fly. And we were in debt. And then I married Louise, and looking back, I should have waited, but I couldn't wait because I thought Jesus is coming soon, and <laughs> I didn't want to wait. Did, did Louise manage to get a handle on your finances that you were struggling fl slightly with yourself? Well, you? I think it was hard for her, uh, and those were not easy days in, when it comes to finances. Uh, but eventually... Uh, working as a vacuum cleaner salesman, door to door. Uh, that's that's what I did to get out of debt. Mm. And uh, and then once I got out of debt, I became a Southern Baptist. And I was pastor of Lauderdale Manors Baptist Church in Fort Lauderdale. But then it hits me. I'd never really finished college. I should. And we took a major decision in 19. 70. I would finish my education, and then I went to seminary, Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky, and they recommended me for Oxford. I see. And that's so the that, that was where it all came from. That's the, now you've got pretty much the whole story. You had that extraordinary vision in that car that we started talking about. Did that very experiential aspect of the Holy Spirit continue, or, or was there a later point at which you experienced the okay. baptism of the Holy Spirit? All right. Because that's well, been an important part of your ministry, yeah. too. And it's a theological point, too. Mm. You see, here is the thing. On the day that happened, which I call my baptism of the Holy Spirit, and that's what it was. Mm. I know that. Yeah. I didn't speak in tongues. Therefore, there are those who say, well, that wasn't the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And I say to them, I don't think tongues necessarily have to be there. This was Dr. Lloyd-Jones' position, exactly. Mm -hmm. And this is where we were together uh, uh, perfectly. The tongues are not the evidence. I think it's a mistake to say that. That said, three months later, I'm driving in the same car, a different place, and there were people in the car with me. And I can remember where it was when I felt something, I would say, in my stomach. It didn't sound silly, but it was in my stomach. that, Like a well that needed to erupt. Yeah. And the only way to let it happen was to start uttering unintelligible sounds. So I did. And I was so embarrassed, I rolled the window down, let the air in, and looked to see if anybody might hurt. Nobody said a word. And I thought... I have just spoken in tongues. Now, there will be those who say, well, that's when you were baptized. I don't think that at all. I think this is very important. Dr. Lloyd-Jones held that the baptism of the Holy Spirit is subsequent to conversion, but that it's the highest form of assurance. Hmm. See, that's what happened to me. I knew I was saved. Tongues came later. I think for some, it doesn't come, but it did in my case. So I don't say... Everybody's got to speak in tongues. When Paul said, do all speak with tongues, the answer was obviously no. Mm. And I think charismatics should cut slack sure. here for people. And I think, I think to some extent, I think that has happened. I don't think it's insisted upon, perhaps only in some particularly dogmatic sort of yeah. areas of Pentecostalism, if you like. But, 
But it is interesting because I've been calling you an unconventional Calvinist and, and, and you're a charismatic Calvinist. As you've said, by and large, that movement is associated with a cessationist point of view that the gifts of the You spirit, mean the, the Calvinist movement is? The Calvinist movement is. Yeah. Um, whereas, but you've, you've sort of been one of the pioneers in many ways of, of putting together those two streams of theology and experience. I mean, word and spirit. The word and the spirit, exactly. Um, that's had many manifestations over the years, though. I mean, you were happy to affirm, for instance, the Toronto blessing in the early 90s, which got many people worried. Some were not sure this was of God. Others, very definitely it was. And, and you can see the effect it's had on many churches around the world. What, what for you defined in that case for you that this was something to welcome and affirm as a move of God? Well, there was a process. Now, what I've just told you about when I first spoke in tongues goes back to 1956. Mm. I didn't tell that to anybody. One of the first persons I told was Martin Lloyd-Jones, who was very impressed. (laughs) Had, Had he spoken in tongues? Can't answer that. Okay. But I, I never went public with this. I told Dr. Lord Jones because I thought he should know. Well, in 1982, I made the most controversial, but I'll tell you now, the greatest decision in 25 years. I invited Arthur Blessed to Westminster Chapel. Now, I didn't perceive him as charismatic. And people were angry with me because I told everybody he's not a charismatic. And I meant that, because I thought that. I now think that Arthur was a closet charismatic, but I didn't know that. A bit like you in that sense. You were something of a closet charismatic at this point. You tell me. I mean, I I guess I was a clandestine Pentecostal for years. Uh, I'm an overt, open, unashamed Calvinist. Uh, but my doctor of the Holy Spirit, I believe, and Dr. Lloyd-Jones knew about it, and I, I just felt no need to say much about it. But here's what happened. We invited Arthur, and he turned us upside down. I nearly lost my job over it. The charges of heresy that they brought on, that would have never happened if I had not invited Arthur. This is the thing. If I had never invited Arthur, bless it, I would have never been charged with heresy. What happened was... Some of the deacons so disliked Arthur. Imagine bringing a guitar to church and singing choruses. They didn't like that. They felt that this was destroying the traditional worship. And Arthur got us out on the streets. That's another story which I'm very happy to talk about if you want to. Mm. Our pilot light ministry was born. And then I started giving an appeal at the end of the services, which Dr. Lloyd-Jones never did. And people thought that I was going against the doctor. But there's a story there, if you'll Mm, come back, because I'd like to tear the whole story on that. I wish we had all day. (laughs) But here's the point. Those were the beginnings. But because I nearly lost my job, I decided I'm going to spend the rest of my time at Westminster Chapel doing nothing controversial. (laughs) Lord, I showed you I would do it. I'm not going to do it anymore. (laughs) And I think he said... Really, because some years later, I was brought to the place where either I invited certain people or or not. And I don't think you want to mention some names here. I'll do what you say. Let's just say this. Uh, We became open to the prophetic aspect of ministry. And that was... This was a significant move in the life of... Well, you've heard of the Kansas City Prophets. Exactly. Well, I now now, uh, got to know all of them quite well. (laughs) Some of them better than I mean, if if having Arthur Blessett was an issue for some people in your church, presumably this was also a a bit of a turning point. Yeah, but funnily enough, I didn't lose any members over that. What got me in trouble was when the Toronto Blessing came out and I endorsed it. Mm. Now, I didn't endorse it at first. In fact, quite the opposite. When I first heard about it, (laughs) I heard about people at Holy Trinity Brompton being prayed for and falling on the floor and laughing their heads off. 
if you'd put me under a lie detector then and asked me, did I think that was of God? I would have said no. For one thing, if it really was of God, it would have come to Westminster Chapel first. <laughs> I couldn't imagine. I felt betrayed. I said, Lord, here I've, I've lost my ministry for Arthur Blessed and these prophetic people were out on the streets with pilot lights and all these people calling me a heretic and antinomian and all this stuff. Surely you're going to reward us for all that. We've, we've borne the heat of the day. And here those come in at 11th hour, and now something's happened at Holy Trinity Brompton. I thought, can't be of God. First of all, they're Anglicans. Everybody knows Anglicans are apostate. And they're posh Sloan Square accents and Etonian trained. You know, I dismissed it all, the whole thing. A man by the name of Ken Costa got in touch with me. Now, that goes back for years because he had been in touch with me before. He claims that my book, God Meant It for Good, had been a blessing to him. He said, R.T., I need your wisdom. Something's happened at Holy Trinity, and I don't know what to make of it. He said, do you have any sermons on 1 John 4, 1, 2, 3, 4? I said, yeah, 4. <laughs> he said, I'm sending a courier over. I gave him those four sermons. He said, I'll read them, and I want to take you to lunch. Well, I knew he was going to talk about this, which at that stage had not been called Toronto Blessing. That came. But this was in the like, early days. I was ready to sort him out. Do you know, before that lunch was over, I was trembling that I'm on the wrong side of this. This is of God. I could see it all over Ken's face. He, he was wanting help. This is of God. I called Louise. I said, we've been wrong. The things he began to share with me. And I, I knew that in the Welsh revival, there were evangelicals that opposed it. In the Great Awakening, in, Odd, in Edward's day, there were evangelicals that opposed it. What if I'm in this tradition of opposing what God is in? I was scared. And you didn't want to be on the wrong side I of history. I sure didn't. No. And I, I, I called Louise immediately. I said, I think we've been wrong. And when I got home, I said, I'm going to tell the deacons. I told the deacons when they came in, this was a Friday evening. I said, I think I've been on the wrong side of the issue. And you know what they said? We're with you all the way. No. They did. On the Sunday morning, I went to the pulpit. I climbed down publicly. I said... We've been wrong. I'd previously warned them. I told yeah. everybody, you know, you don't, Stay this clear. is not of God. And I, it wasn't easy, you know, to admit you're wrong. It was a great decision. If, if Arthur Blessed coming was the greatest decision, the second greatest was admitting I was wrong about that. And I'll tell you what, we invited uh, Sandy Miller and some of his people to come to Westminster Chapel and pray for our deacons. We went over there and got prayed for. My wife was deeply touched by it. And then some months later, Colin Dye said, Rodney Howard Brown's in town. He'd like to meet you. I said, well, I'd like to meet him. I knew that he was kind of the daddy of all this. Mm. And uh, so when I meet Rodney, I felt this is it. This is, this is a guileless man of God. I don't care what people say. And I invited him to Westminster Chapel, but what really happened that day, Louise had been very, very ill. I mean, very ill. So much so that I thought I was going to have to go back to America, resign. She had a cough, horrible cough. You could hear her a mile away. Had it for three years. Trips to America, to Florida, we thought the clear air would, would heal her. She even had to go to the hospital in emergency because her eyes, her retinas, they were going to be detached from her cough. Mm. And she spent a night at the Holy Trinity, uh, not Holy Trinity, uh, Brompton Hospital because of her cough. Nobody could heal it. So when I meet Rodney, I said, would you come to the chapel Saturday, not Sunday, Saturday, because I'll be out on the streets, but I'll come in and we just pray for Louise because she's not going to come to one of your meetings. I can tell you that. She won't come. But maybe I can get her over. And do you know, 
he and Adonica prayed for Louise. She was healed instantly. I saw it. I saw it healed right on the spot. Do you know what? I knew by that. You know, there's no turning back. Never looked back after that. And uh, so that's just how I came to endorse all this. And people still think I've lost my head. And I I, I get letters. Is it true that you... (laughs) endorse the Toronto blessing. I said, it sure is. And and it, it goes back to all these things. I wish I wish we had all day to talk and but there were just a couple more things I did want to sort of okay. get to in in the course. Because the controversies continue of course and you haven't been willing to give your approval to everything that's you know, reared its head over the last few years. You've talked about the yuck factor that's involved sometimes in issues around the baptism of the, of the Holy Spirit and so on. Um but one yuck factor that you couldn't quite resolve in your mind was the so-called Lakeland revival. Oh, Todd well, Bentley and so yeah. on. And and I know that you did speak out publicly against that before it all kind of unraveled and and so on with him having yeah. his voice. Well, you really have so done on. your homework. Well, what happened? Well, was I remember I, at the I time when, when e- it was happening. You talking about? Well, it. we had moved to Nashville now, and I'm getting emails from England. Said so we hear revivals broken out in Florida. I said, really? What are you talking about? Oh, turn on God TV. Well, we did. And I thought, well, this is it. And we start watching this man every night for weeks. I didn't miss if I was in Nashville. Never in my lifetime have I seen such an opportunity to reach the world for Jesus Christ. They were being listened to in Iraq, China, all over the world, live. And this was heralded as last day ministries. This is it. This is the big thing we've been waiting for. I began to ask myself, well, if this is it, surely God would raise up somebody that would preach the gospel. And I kept listening. How many times do you suppose this man preached the gospel night after night after night for months? Not once. And there was no conviction of sin, no sense of God. It was all word of knowledge. You've got this pain. You've worried about kidney. And for all I know, the words of knowledge were accurate. And maybe some were healed. But I knew one thing. The gospel wasn't preached. And then when he would baptize, it was in the name of the Father, the Son. Bam! Didn't even say Holy Spirit. So much. It was it trivialized the Trinity. This is not of God. So... A magazine in America called Ministries Today had a whole feature on what they called the Lakeland Revival. I was one of the ten that wrote in it. Nine of them affirmed it in one way or the other. I alone, I feel like I've got the Elijah complex, <laughs> said it's not of God. And people were horrified. Don't say it's not of God. Just say well, you're not sure. I said it's not of God. I was never so sure of anything in my life. And Different high-profile men said, R.T., don't say that. I won't mention names. These are good people. I said, it's not of God. Okay. I stood alone. That was it. I didn't care what they thought. Well, months later, it turns out the whole time it's going on, the man's sleeping with his secretary in a trailer behind the auditorium. Now he marries her. And they all say, well, R.T., you were right. Why did it take that to make you think it? Why didn't you know by listening to him? You should have known, and that's where I stood. But then you equally get things in the other direction. You're willing to stick your neck out again very recently in issues around the Holy Spirit and what leading people have to say about it. Famously, last year, John MacArthur hosted a conference and wrote a book called Strange Fire, in which he effectively dismissed or at least suggested that the vast majority of those who call themselves charismatic are actually... It's not of God. He's a Calvinist, but a very different one to you. Um, You've actually written your own book, a response book effectively, Holy Fire. And you wrote an open letter at the time that the conference was happening to John MacArthur. You know everything. Do you know my social security number as well? (laughs) Probably tell me the address where I was born. I I just like to follow these things. What can I say? Well, my publisher phoned me last March. And said, R.T., we've just got word that this man, I, I, I don't mention his name, uh, 
is coming out with a book called Strange Fire. Well, as soon as they said that, I knew what he's going to say. I know him. Of course. I could have written the book. <laughs> they said, somebody's got to answer him. We think you're the man. I said, I will. I'll call my book Holy Fire, which my wife Louise gave me that title, Holy Fire. Well, the trouble was I didn't have access to his book. I had to write it anyway because they needed to get it out. Mm. Well, when his book came out and I got to read it for the first time, my book was finished. I was nervous. I thought, what if I've left something out? I was so relieved. When I read his book, I thought I wouldn't change a word in my book. I mean, I, it, anyway, Jack Hayford wrote the foreword to my book. He calls it a landmark book. It was kind of him, but he, he said it is that. And I got over 30 endorsements from well-known leaders, and uh, the, the jury's still out to see who's, who the world's going to agree with. But, I mean, uh, do, you, do you respect this gentleman, let's say? Of course I do. Oh, listen, he's the salt of the earth. He and I are both reformed, so on that we're the same. The trouble is, he doesn't believe the Holy Spirit speaks today, and I do. And he thinks tongues are voodoo. I don't. Mm. And, you think he's made a big mistake then in placing this flag in the ground that he has recently? I'm not his judge. I wouldn't want to be in his shoes for anything in the world. The horrible things he said, I wouldn't want to be in his shoes. We'll just have to wait and see. Let, let okay. God sort it out. There have been so many other things I wanted to get to in the course of this interview, but we haven't I'm had time. I don't know what they were. <laughs> well, we could have talked about you meeting Yasser Arafat and becoming friends with him. We yeah. could have spoken about all kinds of other aspects of your ministry in life. But will you come back one day and we'll do another one? You're very kind. <laughs> it would be great to have you back. Thank you. Um, thank you very much for joining me today, though, on the programme, RT. You honour me. You've been listening to The Profile in association with Premier Christianity magazine.